Good morning, Calvary Chapel. Good morning. Let's go back to September 29th, 2006. That's when Petty Officer Michael Monsor is United States Navy SEAL operating in Ramadi, Iraq. Mansoor is standing on a roof in Ramadi, and he's standing in front of a doorway to this roof. He has two Navy SEAL teammates lying in the sniper-prone position next to him. They've already taken AK-47 fire and a rocket-propelled grenade, but they're not exactly sure where the enemy is. There's a little bit of a lull in the fighting. Insurgents have blocked off the streets in Ramadi, and there's someone on the loudspeaker in the town mosque yelling, Kill the Americans! As Monsor and his team are looking for the next attack, an insurgent from an unknown location throws a grenade up on the roof. It hits Monsor in the chest, and it falls to his feet. Due to the length of the throw, there's no opportunity to pick it up and throw it back. He has only a split second to make a decision. He can leap through the doorway behind him and save himself, but if he does, his two teammates lying on the roof will surely die. Monsor yells, Grenade! But instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumps forward chest first onto the grenade. It detonates. 30 minutes later, 25-year-old Michael Monsor is dead. His two teammates lying on the roof receive only minor injuries because Monsor's body muffled the blast. One of the survivors said at Monsor's funeral, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends, I will go in their stead. I've never seen a United States president cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush invited Monsoor's parents into the East Room of the White House to give them their son's Medal of Honor posthumously. The president couldn't even get through the citation without breaking down. Since then, Monsoor's High School in Garden Grove, California built a new stadium. They named it Michael A. Monsoor Memorial Stadium. The golden trident insignia that the SEALs wear dominates the 50-yard line. January 2019, North Island, California, just outside of San Diego, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsoor, the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet, Zumwalt class. This is Monsoor's mother, Sally, being escorted onto the ship named in honor of her fallen son. Now, why did they do this? Because Michael Monsoor literally sacrificed himself to save his friends. There's no greater love than to sacrifice yourself to save your friends, said Jesus of Nazareth before he went to the cross. Michael Monsoor sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is, would anyone sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is, someone already has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. 
But in today's culture, a lot of people don't think the story's true. After all, it was written down by religious people. We know religious people tend to embellish things. It also has miracles in it. We don't believe in miracles anymore. Hasn't science somehow disproven miracles? How can you believe in such a thing as a resurrection? Well, I actually think it's easy to show that Christianity is true. You only need to answer four questions in the affirmative to show that it's true. In other words, if you investigate these four questions, I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes. And if the answer to these four questions is yes, then Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. Now that is some pretty grooving music, isn't it? Yes, that is actually from our TV show, which is on DirecTV channel 378 every Wednesday nights at 9. It's also on Roku. If you have Roku, just look for NRB for National Religious Broadcasters. If you don't have DirecTV or Roku, it is actually streamed live on our website and also on our app at that time. We're also on radio every Saturday mornings, a number of stations around the country. But that's podcasted, so you can listen to it anytime you want. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And what we do is we present evidence for Christianity, and we cross-examine ideas against it based on our website right there, crossexamined.org. Now, why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. And by the way, this is going to serve as our outline here this morning and this afternoon if you come back at 2.30. We're going to go through all four of these points. First question, does truth exist? Why is that important? Well, you hear people saying there's no truth, you got your truth, I got my truth, all truth is relative, right? You've heard these claims. Well, look, if there's no truth, then Christianity can't be true, right? Well, if there's no truth, atheism can't be true either. In fact, nothing could be true if there was no truth. Ladies and gentlemen, if there was no truth, would you ever go to school? I mean, of course there's truth. We're going to deal with that first. Second question, does God exist? Obviously, Christianity can't be true if there's no God. But I hope to show you this afternoon that there really is a theistic God. What's a theistic God? That's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created all things and sustains all things. We're going to look at three arguments for this being. These arguments are taught in the Bible, but you don't need the Bible to know them. In fact, we're going to establish point two without any reference to any religious writing. You can know God exists without the Bible, all right? Third question, are miracles possible? Obviously, Christianity can't be true if miracles are not possible. But I hope to show you this afternoon that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and even atheists are admitting the data for this miracle. We'll see that this afternoon. Then the key question is, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer if there's no truth, no God, or no miracles. But if truth exists, if God exists, and miracles are possible, then we're going to see if the evidence from the New Testament is reliable enough to let us know if one event from the ancient world took place. What would that event be? The resurrection, right? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, game over. Christianity's true. Of course, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, game over, it's false. You might as well sleep in on Sunday and do what you want the rest of the week. Because if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your faith is in vain. 
as the Apostle Paul told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, look, if he hasn't risen from the dead, forget it. Forget about it, as we say in New Jersey. It's not true. Christianity can be verified by trying to discover if Jesus rose from the dead. It's an historical religion. You can check it out. Now you say, well, so what if Jesus rose from the dead? What does that tell us about the Bible? Look, if Jesus rose from the dead, then he's God. And whatever God teaches is true, right? Jesus taught the Old Testament is the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. Look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody predicts and accomplishes his own resurrection from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says. All right? Okay? Now, we'll see more of this this afternoon, but uh, even this afternoon, we're not going to be able to go through it in a lot of detail. So if you want to get the entire PowerPoint presentation, text the word evidence to 855-909-0582. Just text that word evidence. I'm going to send you this entire PowerPoint presentation in a PDF format, even slides I can't show you because we don't have enough time. And you can just look at it at your leisure. We do have some books available on the book table and a 12-part DVD series that goes through all this visually. You can get curriculum and workbooks that go with it. And there's another book out there called Stealing from God. Now, Christians, this book, Stealing from God, is not about tithing, okay? The subtitle is Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I've noticed that when atheists are arguing there is no God, they actually have to steal aspects of reality that would only exist if God existed in order to say he doesn't exist. In effect, they have to sit in God's lap to slap his face, all right? Now, by the way, if you do buy a book or a DVD set, I want you to know that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine, okay? <laughs> Just so you know. I got three sons, so I need some help. Actually, they're a little bit older now. Many years ago, I was in the Navy, which stands for Never Again Volunteer Yourself. But my sons were smarter than me. The two oldest wanted to go in the military, so they went into the Air Force. The oldest son is an intelligence officer. He's a major in Anchorage, Alaska. In fact, he is an intel officer, which means he's reading your email right now. And you shouldn't be emailing in church. The second son is a KC-10 pilot. You guys know what a KC-10 is? A KC-10 is a big plane that flies along and has a boom coming out of the back of it and it refuels other planes in flight. You've seen this, right? Big planes flying along, other little planes come up, get gas from them as they're flying. So what we say about our middle son, Spencer, is that every day he flies up to 30,000 feet, he sits around, and he passes gas. <laughs> and he gets paid for it. This is every man's dream. If I got paid to pass gas, I'd be a multimillionaire already. The third son is not in the military, but he is out of the house, so my wife and I are now empty nesters. That's right. Actually, it took us a while to get used to that. About 10 minutes. That's how long it took to change the locks. Do, do we have any empty nesters in here? Look at this. Notice how clean the house stays when they're gone, right? When they're gone, you clean the house, what, every two weeks? When they're there, every two hours. They're messy. Now, some of you are probably thinking, wait a minute, Frank, you're going to try and give us evidence that Christianity is true? Aren't we supposed to just have faith? No. In fact, the Bible even teaches you that you ought to get evidence for what you believe. Peter famously said this, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey, right? 
Do we have any people here from New Jersey? What exit? Forgot about it. My cousin's over here. I got a couple of cousins over here. That's Gina and Maria. Stand up for a minute, would you? Right there. They're my cousins. They live in the area. So we're supposed to have evidence for what we believe. So what we're going to do is we're going to start right here at point one. Does truth exist? Are you guys ready to go? All right. Now, whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. Right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said, yeah. Calvary Chapel, Port St. Lucie. He did not say it that way. You can't handle the truth. If he said it that way, the movie would have gone nowhere. That's not how he said it. Here's how he said it. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. All right, let's try that again. I want the truth. Now, it was worth getting up this morning to come into church and yell that, wasn't it? Didn't that feel good? How often do you get to do that in church? Especially when the pastor's up front. You can't handle the truth. Well, there's a lot of people that can't handle the truth. They're saying, you got your truth, I got my truth, all truth is relative. Well, if you don't get anything outside of what we talk about here this morning or this afternoon, this is going to be the most important thinking skill we're going to talk about. This thinking skill is so important that if you get it down, half of what you need to know, you'll already know to defend the Christian faith. Why? Because half of what you need to know is just how to identify things that are false, statements that are false. And this thinking skill will help you do it. And there's so many things said in our culture now that are false, and you can identify them as false with this one thinking skill. And that's really important. Why? Because if you start believing false things and start living by them, you're going to smack up against reality and it's going to hurt. All right. Now, I was 33 years old. I already had a master's degree and I did not know what I'm about to show you now, which is, shows you what a dimwit I was. And it's so easy. The easiest way of showing you this thinking skill is to give you an illustration of using it. Suppose someone were to come up to you and say, there is no truth. You should ask that person a question. What should the question be? Right. Is that true? I mean, if somebody says there's no truth and you ask, is that true? What are they going to say? Can everybody see this is a self-defeating statement? Right? To say there is no truth is actually a truth claim. And here is what you need to do to show it's self-defeating. What you do is you turn the claim on itself. Turn the claim on itself. So somebody says there's no truth, you turn the claim on itself and you say, is that true? Now, what's a self-defeating statement? A self-defeating statement doesn't meet its own standard. Like, if I were to say I can't speak a word in English, what would you say? Hey, use an English to say it. Or if I were to say my parents had no kids that lived. Right? Or my brother is an only child. Or everything I say is a lie. Some of you will get that tomorrow. Or all generalizations are false. Some of you will never get that one, all right? These are known as self-defeating statements. And once you get good at recognizing self-defeating statements, you can be a fearless defender of the faith. Because so many things we hear in our culture are literally self-defeating. They're illogical. Let me give you a few more of them. Suppose someone were to say, there's no such thing as absolute truth. 
If you turn the claim on itself, what would you ask back? What question would you ask back? You guys sound like Charlie Bounce te teacher at this point. Blah, 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 blah. If someone says there's no such thing as absolute truth, if you turn the claim on itself, you're going to say, is that an absolute truth? Or you might say, are you absolutely sure? Can everyone see that this is an absolute truth claim at the same time it claims there's no such thing as absolute truth claims? Now, sometimes it isn't said this way. Sometimes it's said this way. All truth is relative. You've probably heard that, right? If someone says all truth is relative and you turn the claim on itself, what are you going to say back? Is that a, is that a relative truth? No, this again is an absolute truth claim claiming all truths are relative. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Now, sometimes in our culture, they don't say it this way anymore. Here's how they say it now. They'll say things like, there isn't the truth, only my truth. That's so Oprah, isn't it? Right? Just, you just live your truth. I got my truth. There's no the truth. There's just your truth. Now, if someone were to say this, there isn't the truth, only my truth. If you turn the claim on itself, what question would you ask them back? Think about it. This is the interactive portion of the program. All right? You guys got nothing? Come on. If somebody says, there isn't the truth, only my truth, simply ask, is that just your truth or the truth? I mean, think about it. Look, if this is just your truth up here, in other words, it's just your opinion, then why should I believe it, right? But if you're saying this is the truth, you just got done telling me there is no such thing as the truth. This is self-defeating. In fact, I know this is unpopular today, but there's no such thing as your truth or my truth. There's just the truth. To say otherwise is to actually claim a the truth, which you just got done saying doesn't exist. Now, you might say, well, Frank, there are some truths that just apply to you and not to me, like your name's Frank and my name's Bill or Julie or something like that. Yeah, I get that. There are truths that just apply to you and not to me, but it's still objectively true that my name is Frank and your name is Bill or Julie or whatever it is, right? It's still objectively true for all people at all times at all places that my name's Frank and your name is whatever it is. It's still true. It's just not my opinion or your opinion. It's true. Now, sometimes they don't say it this way. Sometimes they say it this way. It's true for you, but not for me, right? You've probably heard people say that. Oh, Christianity's true for you. Buddhism's true for me. What do you say to this? This is also self-defeating. It's just a little bit more subtle. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, say, hey, is that true for everybody? It's true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me, can't be true because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough, but that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Yeah, go to your bank teller and say, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller leaves your account and says, I'm sorry, I only have $6.04 in your account. It's easy to get the money. You say, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the 100 grand. Are you going to get the money? No, if it's true, there was only $6.04 in your account. That's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. You know, I go to a lot of churches. I normally ask people, do you think Christianity is true? And most people will say yes. And then I'll ask them why. Do you know what answer I get more than any other? 
because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? No, your faith doesn't change a thing about those things. I mean, do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? Hey, look, there's another one. Hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. You say, well, why is the Bible always talking about faith then? Because there's two kinds of faith. This is a very important distinction. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible is true. That's getting evidence. That's what we call apologetics. Doesn't mean we're saying we're sorry. It means we're making a case for our position. But all the belief that in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. For that, you gotta go from belief that to belief in. You see, belief that is just of the head. Belief in is not only of the head, it's of the heart. You know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? Pastor Mike, this is a sharp group here this morning. <laughs> James said, even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Do you realize the demons know that God exists better than we do? but they don't trust in him. Why, they don't want to trust in him. You see, there's a difference between belief that and belief in. And we know this in relationships, don't we? When I first met my wife 37 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife, but all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. <laughs> see, that's the difference between belief that and belief in. Now, most of the time when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about the second kind. It's talking about belief in. After you know that Jesus has risen from the dead, then trust in him. Faith does not mean you have no evidence. Faith means you're trusting in what you have good evidence to believe is true. To go from belief that to belief in. Now, if you don't want to go to belief in, you don't have to. God is not going to force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want Jesus now, you're not going to want him in eternity. Now, if you go to college, you're probably going to hear this, and probably, you've probably already heard it, even if you haven't gone to college. There's no truth in anything but science. You've probably heard that, right? Now, if you turn the claim on itself, what question are you going to ask back? Yeah, you're going to say, hey, is that a scientific truth? Can you go in the laboratory and prove that claim right there? No, that's a philosophical claim. That's, you don't get that from science. That's a statement about science. And you can't do science without philosophy. In fact, science is built on philosophy. When you get a PhD, what does the PH stand for? Philosophy. Philosophy of history, philosophy of physics, philosophy of biology, whatever it is. You can't do science without philosophy. In fact, you can't read the Bible without philosophy. Right thinking about reality. That's what philosophy is about. In the book out there called Stealing from God, we have a chapter on science. Here's the title of the chapter. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. What does that mean? Why am I saying that? Because all data needs to be gathered and then all data needs to be interpreted. And who does that? Scientists do that. Science doesn't do anything. There would be no science without human beings. 
So all data needs to be gathered and all data needs to be interpreted. And sometimes scientists will get it wrong. In fact, you ever notice why you get conflicting advice on COVID? People say, follow the science. Which science? You see, sometimes they have good data, but they interpret it wrongly. Sometimes scientists have bad data, but they still interpret it anyway and tell you that it, this is how we're going to interpret it. Sometimes they have the same data, but due to the fact that they have different assumptions, they interpret the evidence differently. Sometimes there's a political agenda. No, no, there would never be a political Are you kidding me? No way. Why do we think scientists are immune to the same temptations the rest of us have? They're not. So what you want to do, if you want to figure out what the truth is, you're going to have to examine the evidence for yourself and try and interpret it properly. Because science doesn't say a word. Scientists say things. And by the way, while science is wonderful, in fact, Maria over here, she's a medical doctor. She's worked in the ER and down in Miami and up in this area as well. They do great work in science. But the most important things in life have nothing to do with science. Honey, do you love me? Yeah. Why? I don't know. Let's run some kind of experiment. No. No, the most important things in life have nothing to do with science. Now, sometimes you're going to hear this, too. You should doubt everything. If someone says that, you turn the claim on itself, what are you going to say back? Yeah, should I doubt that? I mean, why are skeptics skeptical of everything but skepticism? You ever notice that? They don't doubt skepticism. They think it's true. Now, how many people in here, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, doesn't matter. You could be an atheist in here. Here's, here's my question. How many people in here sometimes doubt that what you believe is true? Look, if you don't have your hand up right now, you're probably not thinking very much. I mean, I mean I've written books on this stuff, and sometimes I wake up in the morning and go, I don't even know if this is true. You ever do that? But then I start thinking about my... Uh, I start thinking about my doubts, and I realize most of my doubts are emotional. They're not intellectual. In other words, the evidence for Christianity is really good. If I'm having a good day, everything's fine. Bad day, don't know. Good day, fine. Bad day, don't know. Good day, fine. Bad day, don't know. What's changing, me or the evidence? I'm changing. I'm going up and down. In fact, my friend Greg Kokel, who's written the great book Tactics, that's a book you need to get if you want to interact with people as a Christian, and you should. Get the book Tactics. Anyway, Greg Kokel says this. Before I have my first cup of coffee in the morning, I'm an atheist. After I have my first cup, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. By the time I have my second cup, I'm back to being a Christian again. Now, what's changing, him or the evidence? He's changing. He's going up and down. Now, we run these uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist uh, presentations on college campuses. And... Uh, Sometimes I'll see an atheist on a college campus and they'll say, hey, Frank, I used to be a Christian, but I lost my faith. I'm an atheist now. You know what I want to say to him? So? So? Are you telling me because your psychology has changed, God has somehow popped out of existence? Are you telling me because your psychology has changed, Jesus hasn't risen from the dead? Do you realize your psychology is not going to tell you the truth about anything outside your skull? Your psychology is not how you learn whether something's true or not. The evidence will help you discover what is true or not. Don't concentrate on your psychology. Concentrate on the evidence. 
In fact, you know there are people out there, and maybe some of you are in here right now, you can't get on an airplane. You're, you're scared to death to fly. But do you know what the data show? The data shows that it's safer to fly to the back of this room than it is to walk there. Okay? It's the safest way to get anywhere. But psychologically, some people go, I can't do it. But the truth of the matter is, the data show flying is the safest way. Don't look at your psychology to figure out what is true. Look at the evidence. The evidence will tell you. And that's true about Christianity as well. Your psychology can change with the weather, can change with a bad social media post that really frustrated you. I mean, your psychology can change at any minute, but it's the evidence that doesn't change. So if you start looking at the evidence, I think you're going to realize that you ought to start doubting your doubts. And if you start doubting your doubts, then you're back to knowing something for sure. Have you guys ever thought about doubting your doubts? I doubt it. <laughs> How about this one? You hear this a lot, particularly in today's culture. You ought not judge, you Christians. Jesus said, don't judge. Stop judging. <laughs> All right, let's leave what Jesus said aside for just a minute. What's the problem with the claim? Yeah, if someone says you ought not judge, you might want to ask them, hey, isn't that a judgment? And if we're not to judge, why are you judging me for judging? Now they say, wait a minute, Frank. Didn't Jesus say don't judge? Nope, never said it. Sure he did. He said it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, I know this is going to sound a little bit weird, but it's true. There are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. Do you think when Matthew was writing his biography of Jesus, which we call the Gospel of Matthew, he said, here's chapter 7, verse 1. No! When were those numbers put in the text? It wasn't put in by Matthew and all the other writers. Those numbers were put in about 500 years ago to help us navigate the text, which is really important, right? You need numbers to find your way around. Imagine if you had no numbers in your Bible and Pastor Mike got up here one Sunday and he said, let's go about two-thirds of the way in. Let's see if we can find the same spot, right? No, you wouldn't be able to do that, right? You need numbers. The problem is we tend to think if it's got a number in front of it, we can take it out and make it say whatever we want. We need to read around the passage to figure out what's going on. Jesus says, judge not, but he doesn't stop there. What does he say right after that? Judge not. Lest you be judged by the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye first, you hypocrite, which is a judgment. Notice that. Then you'll be better able to help your brother. Is Jesus telling us not to judge here? No, he's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother. So this is not a command not to judge. It's actually a command on how to judge. Don't judge hypocritically. In fact, elsewhere he says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Everybody makes judgments. You have to make judgments. To say you ought not make judgment is a judgment itself. And number two, if you couldn't make judgments, you'd be dead already. You made a hundred judgments just this morning getting over here. And now you're wondering, was this a good judgment? Because this guy's kind of crazy. Like, you know, why did I even come this morning, right? Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. What judgments do they make? Well, there's no God. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Bible's not telling the truth. There is no purpose to life. When you die, you become worm food. There's no hope. Have a nice day, right? These are all judgments. 
The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? I will say this, however. Jesus did save a very stern rebuke for people who were judgmental. And who were the judgmental ones in his day? The Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? They were the religious and political leaders of Israel. They helped run Israel. In fact, Rome delegated much of the day-to-day political authority to a group known as the Sanhedrin, which was sort of like the Jewish Supreme Court. And Pharisees were on that court. They were the politicians. And Jesus went after these people. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And he wasn't so nice doing it. In fact, if you think Jesus was a sweet guy who's never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read John chapter 2, John chapter 8, or Matthew chapter 23. What happens in John chapter 2? Jesus makes a whip and he goes and he jacks people up in the temple. (laughs) Sweet and gentle Jesus did this? Yes! And then in John chapter 8, he's having an argument with these Pharisees. And he's right in the middle of the argument. And he says to them, your father is the devil. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. Excuse me, I am Christ. Can you imagine you're having an argument with somebody and you say, your father is the devil. Never try that with a sibling. Okay? But that's what Jesus did. And then in Matthew 23, he's talking to these same Pharisees. And what does he say? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert. And then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle, Jesus said this? Yes, Jesus was not Barney. (laughs) Can't we all get along, boys and girls? No! I came to bring a sword. It's going to divide mother and daughter, father and son. Jesus was tough. Don't buy into the sissified view of Jesus. Read the text for yourself. In fact, why was Jesus killed? Well, number one, he claimed to be God, and that was blasphemy to the Jews and sedition to the Romans. And number two, he spoke truth to power, particularly the temple authorities. Caiaphas was the high priest. Do you know that Caiaphas knew that Jesus was probably the Messiah? Caiaphas knew that Jesus had resurrected Lazarus from the dead, which is recorded in John's biography. We call the Gospel of John in chapter 11. Right in chapter 12, Caiaphas, the high priest, says this about Jesus. It's better that one innocent man die than the whole nation perish. He wanted to kill an innocent Jesus to keep his job. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, he's out of work. This is why there's a lot of people out there who claim to me, oh, if Jesus appeared to me, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. You'd say, I need a psychiatrist, right? Because you don't want him to be, you don't want him to be the Messiah. You don't want him. To be Lord over your life. Jesus was tough. By the way, I've noticed one other thing about judging. You ever notice when you compliment somebody, which is a judgment, nobody gets upset? You know, like if you say to your best friend, 
I really love you. You're such a wonderful person. I wish you could be like you. You think your friend's going to say, well, who are you to judge? <laughs> Jesus said, don't judge. No, they're never going to say that. Why? Because I've noticed that people really don't have a problem with judging. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like. In fact, if you tell somebody something that's true and they get mad at you, you just help convict them. As Augustine said, we love the truth when it enlightens us. We hate the truth when it convicts us. A few military people in here, you always get more flack when you're over the target. If you tell somebody something that's true and they're shooting back at you, you're over the target. They don't want their evil deeds exposed and you're doing that. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light. They don't want it to be true. So they're trying to suppress it. So you can't avoid judging. We have to make judgments without being judgmental. As one person put it, evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. That's what we're doing. Because we're no closer to God than anybody else. Without Jesus, we're all lost. Now, we could spend a lot more time on this, but we don't have it, so we got to keep moving. Can everybody see that this statement right here shoots itself? You got it? And all the other statements we went through, right? There are no absolutes. All truth is relative. There is no the truth, only my truth. You know, all truth comes from science. Uh, you, ought, you should doubt everything. You ought not judge. They're the same thing. They're all self-defeating. They can't be true, which means relativism and postmodernism are false. Why? Because they claim it's true that there is no truth. Now, a lot of times, as I say, we go to college campuses. This is from the University of Wisconsin at Madison a few years back. And when atheists get up to the microphone, if they express any hostility at all, I normally ask them this question. And I recommend you ask them a question like this uh, if you are talking to someone who's not a Christian. The question is, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at the microphone in front of hundreds of, hundreds of people and say, no. No. How's that rational? It's not rational. The problem isn't here. The problem's here. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. Why? Because they want to be God of their own lives. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of fun things. But over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in this room who's over 40 years old knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves, right? We're not going to do it God's way. I'm going to do it my way. It doesn't work long term. The only way to get true contentment is to go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. You see, the problem is many people are looking for God like a criminal's looking for a cop. They're not. So if you get pushback from people, always stop and ask them the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If they hesitate or say no, the problem isn't in the head, the problem's in the heart. They don't want it to be true. So all you can do is pray for them, love them, plant a few seeds now and then, and hopefully one day they're going to come around. So there is truth out there. The next question is, is it true that God exists? And we just got a few minutes to give you the first argument, and we'll continue this this afternoon. I mentioned there are three arguments for God. The first argument is called the cosmological argument. It's from the beginning of the universe. And cosmological comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means world or universe. And it says if the universe had a beginning, then it must have had a beginner. 
The second argument is the argument from design, known as the teleological argument. Telos is a Greek word meaning design or purpose. And it says if there's design in the universe and design in you, life, then there must be a designer. Now, these two arguments have scientific evidence behind them. We'll see some of that evidence this afternoon. The third argument doesn't have any science behind it. It's more philosophical in nature, but it's the argument we've all known since we were very small children, and it's the argument from morality known as the moral argument, and it says this. If there's one thing morally wrong out there, just one, like it's wrong to torture babies for fun, or it's wrong to murder six million people in a holocaust, then there has to be a God. Why? Because if there is no standard beyond humanity that we're obligated to obey, the standard of goodness and rightness, if that, if that standard doesn't exist, then it's just a matter of opinion that torturing babies for fun is wrong and murdering six million people is wrong. It would be just, be, just be your opinion against a baby torturer's opinion or your opinion against Hitler's opinion. Well, we know that those issues aren't just a matter of opinion. It's really wrong to torture babies for fun. It's really wrong to murder people. If that's the case, there must be a standard that's really right beyond us. That is what we mean by God's nature. Now, we're going to get to that this afternoon. Right now, we're going to look at the first argument, the cosmological argument. Now, you got to admit, it was worth getting up early this morning just to see God do that. Did you see God do that? I mean, some of, you have, some of you have never seen God move. Oh, really? Check this out. Look at that. He moved right there. Now, this is the argument that many say points back to the big... Now, I know some of you are going, uh, Frank, you know, we're Christians in here, and uh, we don't believe in the Big Bang. You guys don't believe in the Big Bang? I believe in the Big Bang. I just know who banged it. In fact, the evidence for the Big Bang is so good that even atheistic scientists are admitting it. Stephen Hawking, who was probably the top physicist in the world until he died about four years ago. As you know, Hawking had ALS and he was confined to a wheelchair, but he was very well respected as a physicist. He was an atheist, however, yet even he said this. He said, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, Hawking tried to come up with another explanation other than God. He failed, but he's admitting the data. What's the data? That space, time, and matter literally came into existence out of nothing. What is nothing? Aristotle had a good definition of nothing. He said, nothing is what rocks dream about. That's nothing. The universe, space, time, and matter were created now, it wasn't just Hawking who said this. Alexander Vilenkin, a Russian cosmologist who now teaches at Tufts University, put it this way. He said, with the proof now in place, cosmologists... Now, by the way, a cosmologist is not someone that puts on your makeup, all right? This is somebody that studies the universe. Cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is now no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Real interesting of Vilenkin to use a couple of words in here. First word is problem, or sorry, proof. Why is it unlikely to use the word proof? Because science is tentative. There may be new evidence that comes in later that overturns your current theory. But Vilenkin sees so much evidence pointing toward a beginning, he's calling it a proof. The other word is a problem. Why is it a problem that there was a cosmic beginning? Ladies and gentlemen, because if space, time, and matter had a beginning, 
whatever created space-time and matter can't be made of space-time and matter. In other words, the cause must transcend space-time and matter. Think about that. You can't find a cause for the universe inside the universe. The universe had a beginning. There must be something outside the universe that brought it into existence. Now, we're not going to look at the evidence for this. Why? Number one, we don't have time. Number two, it's all in the book, chapter three. Number three, it's not controversial. Even the atheists are admitting it. So we're just going to jump to the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. If the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. We've got two options based on the evidence. Either no one created something out of nothing, which is the atheistic view, or someone created something out of nothing, which is the theistic view. Now, here's my only question. Which view is more reasonable? That no one created something out of nothing or that someone created something out of nothing? Obviously, number two is more reasonable. Yet, I was at Texas A&M like 15 years ago and an atheist said, well, I think number one is more reasonable. I said, number one? Let's look at number two. Number two says someone created something out of nothing. Now, that's a miracle, right? But at least you got a miracle worker. You got someone. Number one is a miracle with no miracle worker. That's clearly absurd. Do you realize that everyone believes in at least one miracle? Christians believe in more than one. We believe in this miracle, that someone created something out of nothing. We believe in many others, too. But you know what atheists believe? They believe that no one created something out of nothing. Now, which view takes more faith? Yeah, no one. In fact, I, when I was at Texas A&M, I said to the audience that night, I said, to show you how seriously we all take the law of causality. By the way, the law of causality doesn't say everything has a cause. The law of causality says that everything that comes to be has a cause. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. There has to be an uncaused first cause. Either it's the universe or something outside the universe. Because you can't create yourself. There's got to be something that's always existed. So I said to A&M that night, I said, to show you how seriously we all take the law of causality, that things don't pop into existence out of nothing, by nothing, without a cause. There is nobody here in this auditorium tonight who is currently worried that as you sit here, a hippopotamus has appeared out of nothing, by nothing, in your dorm room and is currently pooping on your pillow. Right? <laughs> you don't worry about that. You're not worried that right now a raging Bengal tiger is just going to appear out of nothing, by nothing, right here in this sanctuary and start devouring people why because you know that things don't pop into existence out of nothing by nothing without a cause and if the whole universe could do so why doesn't everything do so why don't teslas pop into existence out of nothing by nothing without a cause you wake up one morning you look in your driveway your hyundai is a tesla you go how do i charge this thing right why don't MacBook Pros pop into existence out of nothing, buy nothing without a cause? Could have saved me four grand if they would. If you're hungry after this and for, you know, you want to have pizza for lunch, does it make sense to order one? Or should you just sit in your kitchen, wait, and hope one pops into existence out of nothing, buy nothing without a cause? No, it's the atheists that have all the faith. In fact, here's a question to ask an atheist. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing at all? If there is no God, why does anything exist? Now, ladies and gentlemen, if space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing, and almost everyone agrees with this, agrees with this now, what could have caused space, time, and matter to have a beginning? If space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing, whatever caused it has to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, 
Because to go from a state of nothingness to a state of creation, someone has to make a choice and only persons can make choices. Also, the being would have to be intelligent to have a mind to make a choice. Now, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who do you think of? God. You say, well, how do you know it's the Christian God, Frank? We don't. Yet. We haven't done enough research yet. But if we keep going through these questions, as we'll do this afternoon at 2.30, we're going to see that the same being that walked out of the tomb 1,989 years ago is the same being in whose divine nature created the universe out of nothing. We haven't gotten there yet, but we will, all right? So when you come back this afternoon, if you can, we're going to go through the rest of these arguments and then the rest of these questions, and you know what we're going to be able to conclude? That somebody actually did die for you. It wasn't Michael Monsor. It was Jesus of Nazareth, who not only died, lived the perfect life in your place, took your punishment on himself, but then he rose from the dead, and he promises that you will have his righteousness. And Pastor Matt's going to give you an opportunity to accept that if you haven't done it already. Pastor Matt, ladies and gentlemen.